Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and before we get underway, I just want to give a tip of the Super 70s cap to the Tampa Bay Rays organization. It was my great pleasure to be a guest of the club a couple of weeks ago down in St. Petersburg. They had a one-admission doubleheader, which is like spotting a rainbow unicorn in this era, a really cool event that they put on. The first game was a throwback, and it was my honor to collaborate with the team on some of the themes and ideas that went into that throwback game. I even got to meet Spaceman Lee down there. Are you kidding me? So my thanks to Eric Weisberg and the entire Tampa Bay Rays organization for just a terrific day. Mrs. Super 70 Sports was with me, and I think it was probably the most fun that I've ever had at the ballpark. So big thanks to the Rays for that. And baseball is in high gear. As I tape this, we're about two weeks away from the All-Star break, and I have today on the show a guest for you that knows a little something about playing in the All-Star game. Over a 20-year career that began in 1977, this man was one of the cornerstones of the Detroit Tigers franchise, a member of that iconic 1984 World Champion Tigers Club and one of the best shortstops to ever play the game. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, Alan Trammell. Alan, how are you? I'm good, Ricky. How are you? Doing great. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. There's so many things about your career that I find interesting, and I want to go all the way back to the early days of your career and talk a little bit about yourself and Lou Whitaker. Those are two names in baseball that are going to forever be intertwined, and in the best way possible, I suppose. You guys played over 1,900 games together in the major leagues, over 2,000, I guess, if you count the minor leagues you think we'll ever see a combination as stable as you guys playing together 18 or 19 seasons? Well, let's put it this way. You never say never, but most uh, I would say that it's probably most unlikely uh, just to the fact that the way sports are nowadays and to, to play that long, that many years together is highly unlikely. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, – it should be Lou and Tram together, uh, linked together, as we are. Uh, not too many players are kind of linked together. And uh, we felt that uh, that was I was our bond. And, uh, you know, the, the longest-running double-play combination in the history of baseball. And, and it feels good when you say that. Uh, you know, when we were playing, you know, we were just doing our jobs and having fun and doing what we do. But uh, after the fact, I think you, you know, have a chance to sit back and reminisce a little bit. We're both very proud of the fact that uh, we accomplished that, that, that we played with one team our whole careers. And, uh, you know, we played 19-plus uh, years together. So uh, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Was that something that was important to you, to be a one-town guy? You're synonymous with Detroit, and there's very few guys, you and Lou among them, obviously, but uh, it's rare in in this age of baseball for a guy to have a long career and not at least wind up in another city at some point near the end of the line. Well, it meant both to both of us, it meant a great deal. Um, But 
I don't know. The question has been asked a few times exactly when did that kind of set in. And, you know, it has to be at the, at the, you know, after the halfway point for sure. Uh, it so happened it worked out uh, contractually that to the Tigers, it was a mutual that they wanted us and we wanted them. So uh, oftentimes that, that's not always the case. Sometimes you just got to move on, you know, because of businesses, uh, business decisions, so to speak. But uh, for us, you don't have to work out. Uh, you know, you got into our teams. We both started kind of talking about, well, you know, it'd be kind of nice if it happened this way, but uh, and it happened. And, uh, you know, when, when you look at the back of both of our baseball cards, it says that it's Detroit Tigers. And, uh, you know, again, to us, it meant something to other players. You know, whether it's by design or not, sometimes it was not their choice. But just the fact that, uh, again, you look back and you see the Tigers on the back of our bubblegum card is, uh, is pretty special. So I've got to share with you my, my favorite Whitaker and Trammell moment. And I'm not going to say the 84 World Series, the unbelievable season that you guys had, but I'm going to backtrack about a year, and I'm going to say Magnum P.I. <laughs> well, that was, that was in the... Uh after the 1983 season that, that both Lou and I had a uh, cameo appearance of three lines apiece. But uh, you know, the story about uh, the back the P.I. and Tom Selleck always wearing the Tiger hat, hey, he was a big Tiger fan. And uh, we had a gentleman in Detroit that, uh, that wrote the producer a letter, and he had mentioned that to me, and I just kind of blew it off like uh, you know nothing would happen. Well, lo and behold, they wanted to have us on the show. So when the season was over, after the 83 season, both Lou and I flew over to Hawaii, which is where they filmed it. And uh, we spent a couple of days with Tom and, and their cast. And uh, uh, Tom was is a very down-to-earth person and, and, again, a big Tiger fan, big baseball fan. And so we did this little show, and, uh, you know, it's something that uh, I just kind of smile and laugh about. Obviously, we weren't actors or aren't actors, but uh, we did it. And it was, uh, you know, something that we could look back on very fondly. It's hard work, but somebody's got to do it, Alan. I mean, shoot, shooting on location in, in Hawaii. The scene in Hawaii is actually on the show. It's set in Detroit. Well, that's the way to do it. That's where Dinahead is where they filmed it. And so that's where we went. And uh, actually, Lou and I got a couple of extra days in Hawaii. Tom was on, uh, was doing a movie, and he was out, you know, he was elsewhere. And so we ended up having just sitting around in, uh, in, in Hawaii, tough, you know, a tough job, uh, and enjoying ourselves until he actually got there. And then, you know, again, it was the way they do it. It's very basic, but it took us all day, even though it was only three lines of piece. And again, got a chance to see how they go about their business. And, uh, again, I'm thinking about that. It's something that, uh, you know, we got a chance to do it. Uh, the only time we ever got a chance to do it, but nevertheless, uh, it's in the books. Do you still get like a $12 check in the mail every now and then? For the... <laughs> well, we used to, at least, uh, you know, we had to join the Screen Actors Guild to do this. So for a number of years, you know, we got a couple of checks for like $39.50. <laughs> uh, I dropped out, uh, you know, a few years ago. But, but nevertheless, if you're in the Screen, screen Actors Guild, uh, you would still get some residual checks. I'm you... not going to get rich off of that, that's for sure. <laughs> well, as you know, I'm working on a book about baseball in the 1970s, and I, I want to backtrack to one of the most memorable, 
I would say events, but I guess you could also say uh, catastrophes uh, of baseball in the 1970s, which was Disco Demolition Night at Comiskey Park. Yeah. In 1979, scheduled doubleheader between the Detroit Tigers and the White Sox with this local radio personality, Steve Dahl, was going to uh, blow up disco records that fans have been encouraged to bring to the ballpark that night. It goes terribly awry, uh, and the second game winds up being canceled. What are your memories of that night and how that situation escalated into chaos? Well, it was an eerie night. It wasn't a baseball crowd, uh, that's for sure. And just the whole sense of when the, in the first game, we obviously we did play that game, and then we, we won. But just the, with the reaction from the crowd, I mean, it was a sellout crowd, and you got in for 99 cents if you brought in a disco LP. Well, there was so many people that were still outside that couldn't get in, and they were throwing these things. They're like a... You know, they're pretty dangerous if you throw an LP at, at you know, a record and you throw it, uh, you know, over the stadium and it's, you know, it's coming down. And, and, and uh, I know there were some injuries, but fortunately nothing, you know, as far as that goes. But when they, in between games, when Steve Dahl and they let everybody on the field and they put them in a big box and, and blew them up right on the field in short center field, and then that got chaotic where the fans were just running all over the place. Well, they ended up having to bring the Chicago riot squad out to get the people off the field. Well, these thousands of people on the field, they were doing damage. And when they finally cleared everybody off the field, the umpires declared the game unplayable. And so Bill Veck, who was the uh, owner of the Chicago White Sox, wasn't very happy. But the fact of the matter is it was unplayable. And the Detroit Tigers won the game, the second game by forfeit. And uh, that's that's how it went. Uh, but again, it was an eerie night, very strange, uh, nevertheless. But uh, I guess uh, we, were, we were part of history. I was talking to uh, uh, Steve Kemp a, a few months ago, your, your old teammate. And, sure. and he was telling me how the next day you know, there were still all kinds of little vinyl chips everywhere in the outfield because they just couldn't get it all up. Well, I don't know how they could have, and, you know, if you can envision this, I mean, they had a big box, and they blew these up with uh, some sort of dynamite, and so you can imagine that, as you just mentioned, the chips and the little pieces of the LPs that had gone all over the place. Obviously, they, they tried their best to, to get the bigger pieces and all, but it was impossible to get everything, and uh, again, it was just a creepy, weird night. <laughs> And, uh, you know, again, that's going back to quite a few years ago. But, uh, again, I just remember the fact that, uh, you know, when the game was over, a lot of us, uh, we were in the dugout kind of watching as it kind of started. And they, they quickly told us that we need to get out of the dugout and go upstairs to the clubhouse because they sensed that it wasn't going to be safe. Now, this wasn't very long after Sparky Anderson had taken over the reins that year, I believe. That is true. Sparky came on board around the second week of June. So, yes, this might have been his first road trip with the Detroit Tigers. Pretty nice introduction (laughs) to the American League. (laughs) Welcome to the AL, Sparky. Well, but the the, the best part about it is, is that we won the game. So, you know, that was all that really all that mattered. But again, you know, for safety and all that, it it wasn't wasn't your normal, normal 
night, let's put it that way. Well, let's talk about 84, because that's one of the iconic seasons, really, that any baseball team has had, at least certainly in my lifetime. You guys started 35-5. and I mean, you want to talk about getting out of the gate. You guys just exploded out of the gate like you had a a rocket on your backs. And, of course, ultimately went on to win the World Series in in five games uh, over the Padres. How difficult is that to go wire to wire? seems like it would be human nature to get a little bit complacent when you jump out to a commanding lead. Was was that a challenge for you guys in 84 to maintain your focus? It wasn't uh, It wasn't for the players, but after being now on the other side of this, you know, coaching, managing, and doing all that, you know, Sparky made the comment to us on a number of times that that was a very difficult year because of the start and all the hoopla that was coming our way, that if we wouldn't have won the World Series, all of that most of that would have all been for naught, so to speak. So it was difficult in, in from the coaching and the managing standpoint from what they told us. But when you're playing, we just we were riding the wave. I mean, obviously the 35-5 start gives you the confidence. It gives you a little bit of leeway. And, you know, after that, uh, you know, we didn't play exceptional, but we played well enough. But, you know, again, going back to that start, it just gave us the confidence that we felt like we were going to beat everybody, which we ended up doing. Uh, and, and give Toronto some credit. We ended up winning, I don't know, eight to ten games. But uh, even though we got off to that tremendous start, the Blue Jays weren't going away. So they were they were lurking. And, uh, you know, when you play 162 games, obviously there's a lot of things that go you know, ups and downs. Um, but the fact is that we were able to cap it off. It didn't matter who we played that year. In our estimates, we were going to win. It was a dream year, and it started off with a 35-5 and five start. And what a lot of people may not know is that you're from the San Diego area. I read, I hope that this is right, that, that, is you, that you worked at the Murph, actually, when you were a youngster. Oh, my gosh. I've been in that, that stadium for, you know, the Padres, the Chargers, the Aztecs, the football, the college team there. At, uh, and I was a vendor there for a few years. And for me to go back home and to play, uh, I've never played in a game there, but to play in a World Series, most people wanted to go to Chicago. And I understand that the, for the history and the nostalgic part, that would have been a you know Cubs-Tigers. That would have been probably a better as far as the name. But I wanted to go home. And uh, when we went to San Diego, I actually slept in my own bed. I didn't even stay with a team. So uh, I was uh, very fortunate, very happy that it worked out that way and you know got a chance to go play against my my hometown team i want to ask you about 87 in a moment because i think there's a very good argument that you should have won the mvp award that year but before i get to that i wanted to ask you about playing on astroturf because the the 70s and the 80s were really the the astroturf era especially in the national league i suppose but you certainly uh played your share of games on turf at the metrodome the kingdome in kansas city and, and places like that right from, from a shortstop's perspective how did you like playing on artificial surface well i mean to be honest with you i i preferred playing on natural grass uh no question about it but again you know you're this is what you do you play on the surface that uh, you're playing on and uh so I, you adjust like anything i did not play as a youngster growing up uh, you know so many of the places all around the country now have the field turf the astroturf um 
and I didn't have any of that as a kid growing up. I didn't go to college. So I never played on a passer turf field until I got to the major leagues. So there was a little bit of an adjustment. Um, but again, like anything, you adjust, uh, and it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, I actually enjoyed hitting on it because the kind of hitter that I was, I tried to, you know, use the, the line drive and hit hard ground balls, those kinds of things. Uh, obviously, AstroTurf's a little bit quicker, so over the, over my career, I felt like I, you know, I did okay uh, on that AstroTurf. I used it to my advantage. So, it's like anything, though, that you adjust. I preferred the grass. Uh, it was a little bit harder on your legs if you played back-to-back series. Uh, I do know that it would affect, you know, you just got a little stiffer with your legs and your back, but you got in the old whirlpool and you did things to, to adjust off and, and uh, you know, get your body right. But uh, the guys that played on on a regular basis as their home field, I think it costs just about every one of them at least a year or so off their careers because eventually it's going to kind of take a toll. One of the great debates in baseball that uh, that people have enjoyed and that people have gotten angry at each other about is the designated hitter. Now, you're a career AL guy as a player. You've coached in the National League as well after your playing days. Where, where do you come down on the DH? Well, I mean, as you mentioned, I was a lifelong American leaguer, and that's all I do. But I did coach for 11 years in the National League, and Sparky used to, again, told me that, Tram, you would enjoy the National League. And again, coaching 11 years, I got a chance to see it firsthand. And he's right. I think it's just, as far as just the old traditional baseball with the pitcher, again, there's going to be a lot of disagreement. A lot of people are not going to agree with this. But this is just my opinion. I enjoyed that part. I enjoyed the pitcher being, uh, you know, uh, being able to handle the bat, being able to bunt. You know, if he couldn't bunt, then he probably was going to get pinch hit for earlier than some others. If they could handle the bat, uh, that gave an opportunity to stay in the game maybe a little bit longer. So I just enjoyed that part. But again, as a lifelong American leaguer, all I knew of was the DH. It's definitely a more offensive league. And uh, like anything you do in life, you adjust. And that's what I do. But no question that the pitcher hitting is a, you know, what you're going to call it a disadvantage. But if you can handle the bat, as I mentioned, it definitely helps if you could do that. Madison Bumgarner is is definitely not in favor of the DH. I know that. <laughs> uh. <laughs> That's a good point, and others. I mean, there's plenty of them that take a lot of pride in what they do. And obviously, if you're a National Leaguer and you can swing the bat, as I talked about, uh, you can help your ball club. Well, let me jump ahead to 87, as I uh, alluded to earlier. You had such a tremendous year. Your uh, war, your wins uh, above replacement was over eight. And uh, knowing what we know now about advanced metrics, which obviously that's given us the benefit of hindsight, if that vote had occurred today, you probably would have won. What are your memories of that 87 season? Because it was really a dominant year. Well, I, I remember uh, it quite fondly, to be honest with you. And personal, on a personal note, that was by far my best uh, individual year. Uh, but just taking you back, uh, going into that season, we lost Lance Parrish, who was our cleanup hitter, uh, after the 86 season. He went to the Philadelphia Phillies. So Sparky, again, I, I keep using Sparky, but he was my mentor, and uh, you know, we respected him so greatly. But he liked to have a balanced lineup of left, right, left, right. So I hit second for much of my career, especially early in my career. Well, that year he switched me to the cleanup position. 
So he hit in between Kurt Gibson and Darrell Evans. And so that was one of the reasons why that my numbers went up dramatically as far as, you know, driving in runs. And I had more hits, more home runs, but it was more of a, a tribute to the players around me who were getting on base. And I really didn't change anything other than I had more guys on base on a regular basis in the, you know, in the cleanup spot. So um, I did that for a couple of years. Obviously, I'm not a prototype cleanup hitter, but just goes to show you if you have the guys around you and, and uh, you know, it was just one of those years that, that things went well. And uh, I had, again, my best year, uh, personally. Um, we started off in the middle of May. We weren't doing that well, but from the middle of May on, uh, we got it together. Uh, we went down the stretch the last six weeks of the season with Toronto. We went head-to-head with them. We swept them the last uh, three games of the season. If we would have lost the final game, we would have had a one-game playoff. But we won one to nothing on a uh, Frank Tanana one nothing shutout and a Larry Herndon home run, and we ended up going into the playoffs. But uh, we didn't play very well. We got beat by the Minnesota Twins five games or four games to one. They ended up winning the World Series, so that season kind of gets thrown to the side somewhat. But it was a heck of a year for the Tigers, and uh, you know, it was the one year I could say that we really were in a pennant race. And I look back on that very fondly as well, but obviously we did not win the World Series. Doyle Alexander was, was incredible for you guys when he came over that year. Yeah, and uh, that's, uh, you know what, uh, he went 9-0 for us down the stretch to get us into the playoffs, but we traded somebody by the name <laughs> of John Schmoltz. Well, I wasn't going to bring up that part. Yeah, that's... In the long uh, run, yeah. you know, obviously did work out for us in the long run, but at the time, you know, John was in double A and, and he had not established himself obviously yet, but uh, to get to where we needed to get to, we made the trade, and uh, you know what, I, I'm not going to second guess us because it got us into the playoffs, that's what it, that's what mattered, but obviously John Schmoltz was a Hall of Famer and it would have been nice to have him, but uh, hey, those things, can't look back, that's how it works, and uh, you know, congratulations to John Schmoltz, I Obviously, know him very well, and uh, uh, what a great player and just a great person. Let's talk about the Hall of Fame. I mentioned war earlier, wins above replacement, which is uh, a metric that is used a great deal now in analyzing baseball players and their contributions on the field. And your career holds up extremely well by that standard. And, And in fact, I was uh, prepping for this podcast last night, and I was looking at the all-time war leaders in in baseball history, and I counted 50 Hall of Famers who are behind you in that particular metric, and I stopped there. In my opinion, you're a Hall of Famer. That's uh, I appreciate that very much, and I know that I have quite a few supporters uh, on my side, and you know, the war, and I just kind of smile at all that because when we played, that wasn't a statistic that we were even aware of. We just played the game. And, uh, you know, I'm so fortunate that I'm going to bring up Sparky again that that uh, he taught us how to play the game the correct way. And, uh, you know, I'm so, again, appreciative that we crossed paths that, that, again, I was one of many that he helped and tutored along the way. And just, we were just playing the game the way we were taught. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I feel very fortunate that I had some great players around me and that I was able to hold my own. And, uh, you know, that debate about being in the Hall of Fame is really not for me to, to, to answer because there's nothing else I could do about that. You know, if it happened, it would be awesome. But if it doesn't, you know, I feel very blessed that 
uh, I'm still involved in baseball. I still work for the Tigers. They they let me kind of be a part of it. And, uh, you know, I'm still, I feel very, very fortunate that I'm still part of the game of baseball. But uh, the Hall of Fame is, is something that's out of my control. It's nice to have your name mentioned in that regard. But uh, I mentioned that. Uh, not much I can do about it now. You're still a young man, and the, the Veterans Committee, they I don't even entirely understand it, but they've reconfigured... I don't either. They've changed <laughs> the rules quite a bit here, so I, I, I'm not sure exactly how it works now either myself. My understanding is that you are in the modern baseball era. Is what, I did see that. Yeah. Different classifications, yep. So I believe next year is when you're going to get your first look from the Veterans Committee. Okay. So uh, if any... Uh, if any Veterans Committee members are listening to this, uh, take it from me. This man's a Hall of Famer. Uh, well, thank you. You're welcome. I want to get in one question here that uh, I know my listeners would be interested in, and I, I know that I'm interested in, uh, not only as a podcaster, but as a guy who's uh, working on this book. And that's asking you about Nolan Ryan. Nolan came over in 89, and I know that you faced him uh, in the late 70s as well when he was a member of the Angels, right. and then you got Nolan Ryan, the the 40-plus-year-old uh, version. Could you talk a little bit about facing Nolan Ryan and maybe the difference between the, the California Angels version of Nolan and the older, wiser Nolan that you got in the late 80s and early 90s? Well, sure, and uh, when people ask me, and it's a pretty easy question to answer for me, who was the most difficult pitcher that I ever faced, and it's Nolan Ryan. Uh, there's no question that when he first, when I first came up, uh, and he was still, Nolan was still with the California Angels, uh, he by far, and still to this day, is the hardest thrower that I've ever seen. It, when the ball came out, it, was, it looked like a golf ball, and uh, with the big curveball that he had, uh, it, it was to say that he was overpowering and intimidating is, is an understatement. Uh, and uh, thinking about him as a as a young boy growing up, and then having to face him, you know, again I mentioned the intimidating factor, and he had that. And uh, then as I started to get outs and make outs against him, it started to kind of tick me off. And, you know, then you got to figure out a way to try to battle him. And uh, you know, I got a few hits off him. I never took him deep, but it was a challenge to say the least. Uh, when he came back, and then he went to Houston after that, and I think that's really kind of where he started to develop into more of a pitcher. He still was a power pitcher. And then he went to the Texas Rangers, and again, as you mentioned, he was an older gentleman, but still could dial it up into the mid-90s. But he didn't throw all, he didn't throw mid-90s all the time. He learned how to throw a change-up. He learned how to kind of do a little bit more of a pitcher. And he still was quite effective into his mid-40s, which is unheard of. But it's just a credit to him and his his work ethic and how he kept his legs in shape. But again, a guy that was in his mid-40s could still dial it up 95 and 96, but not pitch at that the whole game. And uh, again, one of the all-time greats uh, in the game of baseball. And, and you would put his fastball up against any of these kids who are out there today? No question about it. I mean, the guns, the radar guns are different nowadays, and it wasn't, you know, what everybody had and, 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 you know, the ballparks and all. But I'm just rest assured you that Nolan Ryan, who was hard as anybody that's ever ever thrown a baseball. Well, let's talk World Baseball Classic here. We're still just a, a few weeks uh, off the heels of the United States uh, having an exciting victory uh, in this event. You were on Jim Leland's 
coaching staff. What was the experience like coaching in the WBC, and what did it mean to you to be a part of that team uh, that won it for the U.S.? Well, I'll tell you what, it was an unbelievable experience, and I know it's the most current event that I've been a part of, but it ranks up there. I mean, I can't say it outranks the World Series because it doesn't. But the fact of the matter is, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the USA. And I never had an opportunity, again, signing out of high school. I never was part of a collegiate USA team or uh, the Olympics weren't part of uh, baseball when I was playing. So to be able to put a USA uniform on, even though I was just a coach, but just to be a part of that and be part of Jim Leland's staff, it meant a great deal. And it, it's always going to mean a great deal. And it's not an Olympic gold medal, but they did hand out gold medals. And I have that uh, in my, on my mantle showing very proudly as part of that USA, the first team from the USA to win the WBC. And uh, it was a heck of an experience. We did well enough to win. We actually played our best game the last game against Puerto Rico when Marcus Stroman had a no-hitter going into the seventh. So everybody bought in. Jim Leland is a, con- it's a confirmation that if you want to talk about somebody that should be in the Hall of Fame, and I believe he will uh, at some point here shortly, way the players bought in, and uh, just watching him work next to him uh, is just a confirmation of what we already know, that he's a Hall of Fame manager uh, himself. And uh, again, just proud to have been part of the USA team. How much do you think that uh, that victory for the U.S. is going to add to the stature of the WBC going forward? Because this is really still a, an event that is kind of in its infancy. Well, I believe that's going to be a stepping stone that by word of mouth now, how the players now, they talk to each other, that it's going to uh, help in regards to getting more players to join on board. And uh, it, it's the first one for the USA. I've got to tell you, it's not going to be the last, but you got to start somewhere. And I think, again, going back to you know winning and the word of mouth, uh, and the intensity that it, it, it's required. And, uh, you know, some of the players like an Adam Jones and a, uh, Eric Hosmer, and uh, there, was a, there was a handful of, of guys that had been with uh, the USA team in 2013, and they were very instrumental in kind of helping and talking guys through this about really what it takes. And, you know, you don't really know until you get into it, but it's almost like a one-and-done kind of thing. And uh, intensity, I can remember the first round when we were in Miami and we played the Dominican Republic, and we had a 5 nothing lead, and they started to kind of get a couple of runs, and the crowd was just unbelievable with the support that they had for the DR. I mean, we were in the United States, but we really weren't. The, the overwhelming crowd favorite was the Dominican Republic. They ended up coming back and beating us, but I think it actually helped us in the long run to kind of help us through the process. But it was, it was incredible. That crowd was incredible down there, and uh, you know we ended up winning or getting advanced. We didn't win the pool, but we, we came in second, advanced to San Diego, and uh, we uh, we advanced to the final round, and then you know ultimately winning it all. But uh, again, I keep saying this, but it was just one of the uh, one of the incredible, unbelievable moments in my career that I'll remember forever. Well, Alan, you've been in baseball for 40-plus years. So much is made today about the changes in the game with 
pace of play being a major concern, making the intentional walk, which is really more of a symbolic change, I realize, but making the intentional walk automatic. Uh, What do you think of the state of the game in, in 2017 with regard to some of these issues that keep popping up that people discuss and feel that baseball needs to address in, in one manner or another? Well, I mean, uh, I, I need to be open-minded uh, as somebody that has been around for quite a while. The, the, the changes in the game, that some of them are needed whether I like it or not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the commissioner, I think, and, and their, uh, their office are trying to keep up with the times, and we're seeing it in all the sports that there's been some changes, or I call them tweaks, uh, that things to keep up with the times. And, uh, you know, do I, do I like the way the game was and all that? Absolutely. I'm not going to deny that. But I do, I don't want to be, uh, you know, so old fashioned where I'm not, you know, going to be open to changes, which in our, in, in, in this generation, you need to be. So I think the game is in a good state. It's in, in fact, I know it's in a good state. Uh, we're drawing more people. There's more stars. The athletes are bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, and the game of baseball is going quite well. But I think we all have to be open-minded enough, again, to to understand that uh, there's always going to be some changes that probably need to happen. And uh, they're, they're doing it. They're on top of things. And, uh, you know, I'm just happy to be that they're letting this guy that's been around such a long time still be a part of this great game of baseball. He's a six-time All-Star, a four-time Gold Glove winner, a World Series champion, and now a gold medalist. Alan Trammell, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. All right, Ricky. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure, my friend, and I look forward to seeing you in Cooperstown in the near future. All right, Ricky. Thank you very much. So much fun talking to Alan Trammell, having him on the show today. There's really nothing like talking to the great superstars of my youth. It's one of the things that makes what I do so gratifying, and I really do hope that the Veterans Committee will get it right and put Tram in the hall Great shortstops are so rare within the game of baseball, and I think he's been underrated in light of some of the uh, arcade offensive numbers that went up during the steroid era, but such a terrific player and and, and a great gentleman as well. And speaking of great gentlemen, you know, next time we'll keep with the baseball talk, and I'll be joined by 1988 Olympic gold medalist. He was the guy who got the final out for the U.S. that year. Went on to be an 18-game winner with the 1991 California Angels, and he's the author of a very memorable no-hitter in 1993 at Yankee Stadium as well. Jim Abbott will join me for what promises to be some great baseball conversation. But until then, this is Ricky Cobb saying to never miss an episode of the Super... 70 Sports Podcast.